So the title today is a little bit weird, and none of us are going to get it right now, but hopefully at the end you'll go, oh, I get the title, and not only will it make sense, but you'll like it at the end. The title is From Colossal Bust to Royal Blue. Now, that's the dumbest title I've ever put on a message but um, at the beginning, but I, I love the title at the end, so just hang in there a little bit today. From a Colossal Bust to royal blue. And today we're talking about God's power to turn our past into something beautiful in our future. Now you may be in the place today with something in your past, something that you did, something that was done to you, circumstance, situation that came into your life in the past. But the thing is, it's not in the past. It's very much in the present. And it still has a hold on you in this moment, not just to kind of hold like I remember it or I can see how God is redeeming it, but it is absolutely a deficit in your life in the present moment as if it were right now, even though it happened a year ago, four years ago, 20 years ago in the past. And what God wants to say to every one of us in the room who's got that story, and that's not like a handful of us, that's all of us to some degree, What God wants to say to us today is this, that our past doesn't just simply define us. Our past prepares us for what God has for us to do in life. God is in the business of redeeming broken past, painful past, rebellious past, and using them for a greater purpose in our future story. We're beginning today with probably the most profound phrase ever spoken by a human being on planet Earth. I know that's a big statement, but I cannot imagine in the moment a more profound thing being said by somebody. We're dialing all the way back to the beginning of our scriptural story in the book of Genesis. And we did a whole message on Joseph back in our earlier comeback series, but I just want to reach back for the conclusion of his story today. If, you, if you're not sure which Joseph we're talking about, we're talking about the son uh, uh, who had many brothers, the Technicolor dream coat, if you remember that guy, um, the second youngest to a father and who was favored by the father, had a vision from God, but because of that, he was hated by his brothers. And to kind of scrunch Joseph's story all the way up from his adolescent years, his teenage years, Like his middle school going into high school years, all the way to when he was 30 years old, his life was a wipeout by circumstances that he didn't have any control over. His brothers resented him, so they threw him in a pit. They they thought about killing him when he'd come out to visit them where they were tending his father's flocks, but they decided at the end of the day just to put him in a pit, think about it some more, and then they decided they would sell him to gypsies passing by. Never felt like that in life where all of a sudden you're just cruising through life and then somebody made a decision that absolutely changed your whole destiny? The gypsies thought, we'll just upsell him again. And they took him into Egypt, sold him on the slavery block in Egypt. He was bought by one of the leaders in Egypt at the time, a ruler in Egypt at the time, to be a servant in his home. He excelled in that because he was a faithful guy. He rose to the top of all the servants in that man's home, only to be falsely accused by that servant's wife of trying to assault her when she, in fact, was the one who wanted to take advantage of him. He honored his boss, his ruler, he rebuffed the advances of his wife. And then she called him into question and said he was the one who made the move on her. And the husband then put Joseph in the prison. He stayed in prison longer than he needed to. There was a man who'd come down from the Pharaoh's court into the prison and he had a dream one day and he said, I'm going to tell you your dream and you're going to go back to Pharaoh. And when you go back to Pharaoh, you just remember me when you get up there that I'm the guy that interpreted your dream and all that happened. But when he got back into the court of the Pharaoh, this guy, it says he forgot about Joseph. And so Joseph's adolescence, his twenties was a wipeout. But one day Pharaoh had the dream. You remember the story? He couldn't get it interpreted by anybody in Egypt. And finally, the cupbearer said, there's a kid 
a guy, a young man in this prison. He's great with dreams. Joseph comes up, interprets Pharaoh's dream. And what's the interpretation? There are going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And, and Pharaoh was so blown away by that, he said, that, that's it. And not only is that it, I'm going to put you in charge of what happens in our country in the seven years of plenty so that you can make sure we have what we need in the seven years of famine. And in one day, talk about a comeback, in one day, Joseph went from the prison to the palace in one day. Eventually, the plenty plays out. Joseph stores up enough resources for the seven years of famine that are coming. The famine hits, Egypt is spared, and now the pinch is on in the neighboring countries. And guess who ends up coming to Egypt for food? Joseph's brothers. And they are starving and have to humble themselves under the mercy of the Pharaoh. And they show up completely unaware that the guy in charge is going to be the same brother they left in the hole and sold to the gypsies. And when he sees them coming, aren't you in touch right now with what he was feeling? This is the perfect setup for not a comeback. This is a different series. It's called The Payback. And now they're about to get what they deserve. And they figure it out. When they realize that the guy in charge is their brother, they freak out. They fall on the sword. They beg for mercy. And then Joseph says, I think the most profound thing that a human being has ever said in any situation. It's found at the end of the opening book of scripture, Genesis chapter 50 in verse 20 says this, you know the verse. If you, if, even if you haven't been in church, you've probably heard a version of this verse. Joseph says to the, his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You intended Evil. He doesn't gloss over it. I'm glad he didn't. He didn't say, oh, guys, don't worry about it. He said, hey, when you, when you sold me out, you intended it for evil. When you came up with that plan, when you shredded my, my robe and covered it with an animal's blood and took it home and told dad that maybe an animal had killed me on the side of the road, when you faked all your grief at my funeral service they had at the house, when you lied all those years about what had happened, you intended to hurt me. In fact, there's a couple of you, I heard you talking, wanted to kill me and not even put me in the pit. You intended it for evil. And that's where we are today. Maybe you're the one who intended it for evil. Maybe it was your decision. Maybe somebody else intended it for evil, or maybe it was just evil itself that came up against you and intended to harm you. But he said, God intended it for good. In every comeback story, there is a but God in the middle of the story. You may have had a plan to harm me, but God the whole time had a plan for good. And the comeback that Joseph talked about wasn't just simply, look at me, I'm doing good. I'm the second in command in all of Egypt. I'm the one running the show. Ha ha, this is how it all turned out. That's not the way Joseph was thinking. And that's what makes this statement so amazing to me. He said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Here comes our message today, to bring about this present result. In other words, all the time in the past, God was thinking about the result he was going to bring about in the future. So in all the disastrous twists and turns in this story, in the past, God was thinking about how he was going to open up something more amazing in the future. What is that saying? It's saying that our setbacks in life could possibly be in God's hands a set up in our lives for him to use us in ways that would blow our minds in the future. And he says, what you intended to harm me with, God intended for good to bring about this result. And here's the result, the saving of many people. When his brothers threw him in that hole, God was looking at his brothers going, I'm going to save you by this act. That's how big the God is 
that we've come to worship today. The, you intended it for evil. What is the it? In all of our lives, it looks like something different, but we all have these twists and turns, disappointments, unseen cliffs and crevices, darkness, depression, distance, disillusionment, death, divide, abuse, absence, attack, betrayal, sickness, misfortune, miscalculation, deserts, failure, rebellion. They're all in our stories. And in a lot of cases, we pulled the trigger. But in a lot of other cases in our lives, we had no control over the things that were crashing into our world. A lot of our past was beyond our control. But here we are now with all of these it's, these things that you intended it to harm me. We have them dominoing into our self-confidence, into our self-worth, into our ability to believe hopefully about our future. But today we have rallied around at Passion City Church the fact that Christ gave his life on a cross and God raised him up from the dead. And because of that, we are rallying around the central idea today that God can take anything in our lives and use it to bring about a result in our lives in the present and in the future that is far greater than anything we can imagine. Your past doesn't have to define you. In God's plan today, your past simply prepared you for a greater purpose which God wants to bring about in your life. Now, Joseph is like me and you, and I think he had some turnaround moments in life, and I think we're gonna have to have some turnaround moments in life if we're gonna onboard today with the hope of what God is wanting to say to us. And the first turnaround moment today for all of us is this, that we have to come to believe that the circumstances of our past don't circumvent God from accomplishing his purposes for our lives. The circumstances of your past don't circumvent God from accomplishing his purposes for your life. See, we, we add it up that way in human terms. Well, I, had, I was on track with God, but then this happened, and that's going to disqualify me from, from moving on with God. I, I, was, I was thinking God had a good plan for me, but then this happened, and once that happened, I know now I'm sort of out and disqualified from what God may want to do with me in the future. But what, what we have to see today is that our past doesn't circumvent God's sovereign plan for our lives, whatever our past may be. It doesn't stop God. Romans 8, 28 is such an anchor text uh, for us as believers, but in the middle of it is a, a goldmine of the sovereign will of God. And we, we all have talked about this verse a lot, but I want to rally us back around it again today. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. This is the thinking of people who've had this, this moment in life where they've had a turning point of believing that circumstances in life don't circumvent God from accomplishing his purpose for our lives. It says in Romans 8, 28, and we know, can you just say those three words with me? And we know, this is where we want to get today. We're all on a journey to getting to this point. Not we feel, we think, we've heard we know, we've come to a turning point in life where we know something. And what do we know? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, the first part of this verse is enough for us to live in for the rest of our lives. If we just simply say, and we know that in all things, God works. Do we believe that today, that in all things, God works? It doesn't mean in every single thing God is excited, God is happy, God loves that result. It just means that in everything God still works. There's never a moment where God says, oh goodness, I'm out. There's never a moment for you where God says, oh man, I didn't see that coming, I'm out. When they put Joseph in the, in the, in the pit, he said, I'm working. 
They sold him to the gypsies. He said, I can work with the gypsies. The gypsies going to sell him in Egypt. I can work with Potiphar. Potiphar's wife's going to falsely accuse him. I can use that because I need him to get down into the jail. Well, when he got in the jail, uh, he got forgotten. And God said, I know, but the time isn't right because Pharaoh hasn't had the dream yet. So I need him to stay down here until Pharaoh has the dream. And then that's going to be the right time for me to work because I'm working in a pit. I'm working with the gypsies. I'm working with Potiphar. I'm working with the false accusation. I'm working in a prison. I'm working when he was forgotten. And I'm going to be working when Pharaoh calls him up into the palace and saves a whole nation and saves his brothers and his father and his whole family. I'm going to be working. And so whatever it is, whatever it is in your life, God is looking at the circumstance and saying, I can work with that. I'm working in that. I'm already writing a big story from that in your life. It doesn't mean that we're careless with our lives, that we're cavalier with our decisions. Oh, I'm going to do this because, you know, God can work with anything. It just means that once our reality is what our reality is, that that God doesn't, you know, like sign off on us at some point and say, oh man, that's really going to stop me from doing what I want to do. What Paul is saying in this verse is, we know that in all things, God works. We don't see in all things how God's working, but we know in all things that God is working. Joseph isn't going to tell you on, on year seven, oh, let me explain all this to you. But over time, Joseph is saying to us, I've come to understand this, that circumstances in life don't circumvent God from accomplishing his purposes for our lives. And it took me some years to see that, Joseph is saying. But now I can tell you this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good to bring about this present result, which is the saving of many people. We've said this before, but your pain and your brokenness can be leveraged for the good of a multitude of people. And God is in the business of doing just that in our lives. It's interesting that Joseph didn't give us a comprehensive philosophical and theological overview of the situation. He didn't answer all of our questions. Well, if God's a good God, why didn't he just take you straight to Pharaoh? He could have done that. Why'd you have to go the long way with the pit and the prison and all of that route to get there. He doesn't answer all the philosophical and all the theological questions we ask. He just said, let me give you the conclusion. The conclusion is, in all things, God works. You can count on the reality of that. And that's what Paul is amplifying. In all things, God works. And he works, look what he works for. He works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, what is his purpose for you and for me? And he answers what it is. He said, here's his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, here it comes, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so that his son, Jesus, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, what you were created for ultimately, what I was created for ultimately was to mature into the very likeness of Jesus himself, that we would take on our spiritual legacy and that through grace and the work of God's spirit that we would mature into people who look like and act like and walk like and talk like on planet earth, our savior, that he would be the firstborn from the dead, but that there would be a lot of us behind him becoming Not becoming Jesus, but becoming like him. And God is promising you today, nothing that has happened to you can stop me from accomplishing that purpose for you. Nothing. Because in all things, God works. You're like, man, that just sounds like a big load of preacher talk right there. I mean, maybe when you're up at the monastery during the week with the other preachers and y'all are meditating on scripture and singing with the angels and you're talking among yourselves, it's like, oh yes, God works in all things. But Louis, come down to the real world, man. Get in touch with the real world. What you're saying 
doesn't add up on a broken planet. And so I just take one step back and say, let's let the author who penned this phrase in all things God works, under the inspiration of God's spirit, let's let him unpack the reality. We know this about him. His name is Paul, but we know his story. He used to be named Saul. And I think most of you may know Paul's story, getting from Saul to Paul. He was born in a Jewish family. He was born into the right Jewish family. He had the best Jewish education. He rose to the ranks of the top Jews that there were, Pharisee, teachers of the law. He had um, everything stacked in his favor in that system of life. We know that he was a big personality. And at the end of the day, when Christ appeared as Messiah, we know that Saul rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so he became a huge antichrist voice after Jesus' death and resurrection and tried to kill anybody who wanted to push the gospel forward. On behalf of saving Judaism, he became a persecutor of Christianity, but he had an encounter with Jesus. And a lot of us have had an encounter like that with Jesus. His was a vision. A lot of ours is just a moment where our hearts are open, our eyes are open. He had an encounter with Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus. He realized Jesus really was the son of God. And then he was given the mission by Jesus of sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel to the known world. He was the first missionary of the Christian faith, this Saul converted to Paul guy. And so let's think about it for a second. Saul had a personality type. What was it? He was bold and brash. We know that just by looking at him before he met Jesus. He was a go-getter and a high achiever. So who would you want to take on the mission of spreading the gospel to the known world? You would look for somebody who was bold and brash, who was a go-getter and a high achiever, and God found the right guy. His past was leveraged for his future. When he met Jesus, he didn't turn into a meek and mild guy. He was still a bold and brash guy, just the redeemed version of that guy. And if you know, you've got a personality right now that's extremely annoying to people, it's possible that in that encounter with Jesus, that personality can be redeemed. And if you're an intellect, God wants to use you as an intellect. He doesn't want to turn you into an idiot. If you're bold and confident, he doesn't want to make you meek and timid. He wants to keep you bold and confident. If you're a person who's never met a stranger, he wants you to still be a person who's never met a stranger. If you're really good one-on-one, like give me somebody I'll track with him over the long haul, he wants to keep you that way. If you're a great writer, he wants you to be a great writer. If you're a good speaker, he wants you to be a good speaker. If you're a good business person and can make lots of resources for the church. He wants you to keep on being a good business person and make lots of resources for the church. He wants to take what you are, redeem it, and then use who and what you are in a better way in the future. And it's beautiful. He says, Saul was bold and brash, a go-getter and high achiever. And I need a bold, brash, go-getter and high achiever to take on the mission of spreading the gospel to the known world. His religious background, Jewish upbringing, proclaiming the gospel now to the Jewish people. So his religious background and education, top of the top of the Jewish world. So what was his primary mission agenda? Do you know when he would go to one of these cities in Asia Minor or what now would be Southern Europe or the Middle East, parts of the Middle East, when he would go to these cities, there would be pockets of Jews already settled there. He would go in their synagogue immediately and to the smartest of all of them, To the religious leaders, to the teachers of the law, he would walk in and flash his Pharisee card. Hi, I got it all. Same schools, same education, same background. You wanna talk about the law for a while? Great, let's just unpack it. And I'm like, this dude is good. And then he would turn the corner and say, but Jesus. This Jesus, you've heard about him who was crucified in Jerusalem. Let me tell you how he fulfills every bit of the law 
and the prophets. And let me explain it to you in detail. And let me tell you my personal story. I've come to know him. I've seen him. He's changed my life. He is real. He is the son of God. I couldn't do that. A lot of you couldn't do that. Who could go in the synagogues and win over the people in the synagogues, but somebody who'd come from the synagogues. And so God was saying, hey, your past didn't disqualify you from being used by me. It actually is setting you up to be used by me. And when you become a follower of Jesus, he doesn't want to just like, you know, do a complete system refresh. He wants to say, let me take what is and leverage it for what can be in the future. His family situation, he was single. God said, that's great. I'm going to make you the first missionary. It's not to mean married people can't be missionaries, but you're going to cover way more ground than a married person would cover because you're single. And you're gonna, I'm going to leverage your singleness, Paul, for the calling that I'm giving you. He was anti-Christ. What a better person to stand and proclaim the power of Christ. And I love this. He had a history. It says in Acts that when an innocent man named Stephen, a follower of Jesus, was killed for his faith, that Saul stood right there and oversaw the whole thing. So every day that he wrote about grace and every day that he preached about grace, it wasn't just him telling the story of something. It was him oozing the reality of something. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, oversaw the murder of innocent people. And every day when he woke up, he realized where God's grace had brought him. And who better to break open the story of the mercy of the gospel of Jesus than someone who every single day breathed that mercy in and through his own life. So I'm not just standing here to tell you that the circumstances of your past don't circumvent God from accomplishing his purpose in your lives. I'm not just preaching that in all things God works. Let Paul tell you today that our past doesn't have to define us. It, in fact, can prepare us for what God wants to do in our lives. The second big turning point that we all have to come to is this, that the proof of God's power over the past ultimately is best seen in the cross of Christ. So it's really not even a comeback story. We've shared some amazing ones here. It's not your comeback story, my comeback story, Saul's comeback story, Paul's comeback story, Joseph's comeback story. Ultimately, the proof of God's power to take the past and make it amazing is found in the cross where Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life there. But what happened there in the past is actually the thing that gives us the possibility of having a brand new future forever in him. In fact, it couldn't be said more clearly through the prophet Isaiah. It's repeated in 1 Peter in the New Testament. You know the verse, by his wounds we are healed. So God is showing us on the cross, I'm in charge of life. So maybe the enemy intended it for harm, but guess what? I intend it for good. And and even in this, I am working. In all things, God works. So guess what? Drive the nails in, I'm working. Put a spear in his side, I'm working. Put a crown of thorns on his head, I'm working. Mock him, I'm working. Let him suffocate and die. I'm working the whole time I'm at work. Right before you, I am taking his past And using the past of Jesus on the cross to change your future forever. You know, going back to Joseph for a moment, it's an amazing name. Some many Joes in the house, I'm not really sure. Um, Joseph's a great name. The Hebrew meaning of the name is God is adding or giving the increase. Where God is adding or giving the increase is what Joseph means. And so think about that. When Joseph was sold to the gypsies, God was saying, I'm just giving increase to the nation and the nations. When they took Jesus' body off the cross, they put it in a tomb. You remember whose tomb it was? It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. 
And so when they put him in Joseph's tomb, isn't that interesting that it wasn't, you know, Bob's tomb, it was Joseph's tomb? So when they put him in Joseph's tomb, God was saying, when you put the body of the Son of God in there, I am giving and adding the increase. In that tomb is where I'm giving and adding the increase. And Jesus' father, what was his name? His earthly father? His heavenly father was God Almighty, but who was the guy in the story with Mary? Joseph. So that when they got the news from the angel, which totally derailed their plans for life, you realize that Mary and Joseph's plans for their life never got back on the rails. But wow, was God ever giving and adding the increase through Joseph and Mary when the Holy Spirit conceived a baby in her womb. And not only is the cross big enough to show us God's power, to, to cover our past, whatever it is, whatever you've done, and whatever's been done to you is covered by the, the cross of Christ, the price that he paid. But it's more than that. The cross, when we see it, when we have that big turning point around the cross, we realize that God actually takes the pain and he paints with the pain. He paints with it something beautiful in the future. I was reading uh, in the past couple of weeks about pigments and paint um, because I was thinking about God taking things that are broken and using them for something that's beautiful. And I, I stumbled onto this paint from the Renaissance era, this color of paint called ultramarine blue. It's the most precious color of the day. In fact, when you see paintings of Mary, the mother of Jesus, this woman who had a fiance and a plan and a hope and a dream, and then all of a sudden she got a message from an angel that the Holy Spirit had conceived a baby in her womb. Try that in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden her life just completely took a turn that she never saw coming. And you're like, yeah, but she got to be the mother of Jesus. That was amazing. She did. But that was an up and down life of, of perplexed living. And then she stood there when they crucified her son. And whenever you see her painted in the Renaissance period, her cloak is always painted in most times in ultramarine blue. Only reserved for Mary, the mother of Jesus, or an angel, or a, a, a character of divinity. In fact, here's a, a great example of that. This one is from Sassaferrato, 1654. And look, I mean, 1654 that was painted is, is crazy in and of itself. But look at that color, that ultramarine blue. Royal blue is what the color was called. So I, I was like, well, well, where did Sassaferrato get the royal blue. You go down to Dick Blick and, and just, how, how did he get that? And so I started investigating a little bit and I discovered that obviously this pigment um, is made from a crushed gem. It looks like this in its crushed form. And I was like, well, where did that come from? And dug a little bit more and come to find out that that's a crushed up gem called lapis lazuli. And you may have heard of lapis before. It's in scripture in a bunch of places. Precious gem. This particular um, stone was mined out of Afghanistan and had been mined for centuries and millennia before Jesus' time. In the Renaissance period, lapis lazuli was more valuable than gold because of its rare beauty and its desired effect in the painters of the day. You can look at Titan, um, Vermeer, some of these great painters who used lapis lazuli produced ultramarine blue, royal blue. And you know what's interesting about that? Is that it's called royal blue, not because it's the royals of the dynasties of the world who got painted in it, but because Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the angels got painted in it. It was a precious color reserved for the very best. And it came from the pulverizing and the crushing of a valuable gem that had to be mined up out of the ground. And I thought, man, this is the cross. It is the place where the Son of God was crushed 
and pulverized. But in the crushing and the pulverizing, God made a pigment. And with the pigment, he made royal blue. And with royal blue, he has painted the story of redemption through the world. Yes, it was crimson red that flowed there, but it was the story of our capacity to be reconnected to God Almighty. And that's what God's doing. You may say, Louis, I can identify with a little powder. That was my dream. That was my marriage. That was my job. That was my business. That was my self-confidence. That was what I had. But now it's just a pulverized pile of nothing in God saying, no, that nothing can become pigment by which I can paint a beautiful story for the world. This is the big turnaround that in the middle of our story is a cross and the cross reminds us today of God's power over our past. And then there is one last big turnaround for each one of us and it is simply this. This third turning point is the place where we do understand that our circumstances don't circumvent God. We do understand that the cross is the proof of God's power over the past. But this third one is so necessary for you and me because it is the turnaround moment, the turning point moment where you and I realize it's not all about us, but it's all about God using us for a greater purpose in this world. You know, when we view our past and our pain and our disappointment only through the lens of ourselves, these are the things that characterize our lives. We become angry. We try to hide what has happened. We resent it. We want to get even for it. We try to drink our way through it. We limp along with it. And at the end of the day, we just ultimately think about its result in us. I am where I am because that happened. I am who I am because that happened. I can only do what I can do because that happened. Everything in my life changed because that happened. I see me through the lens of that every single day, and I see the world around me through the lens of that, what happened to me every single day. But here is the possibility today. If we could have a turning point moment, where we saw that what has happened in our past isn't just about us. Yes, it happened to us. Yes, it happened to you. I will never take that away. I will never diminish that. I will never belittle that in any way. I haven't walked in your shoes. I don't know what you've experienced. I don't know what pain you carry in this place today. All I know is this, is it doesn't have to end with you. See, that was the power of Joseph. Yes, it all happened to me. He could have just stood up and said, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you how I was betrayed. Let me tell you how I was abused. Let me tell you how I was sold out. Let me tell you how I was forgotten. Let me tell you my story. But he had a turning point somewhere along the way when he realized that his story wasn't just about him, that his story was about everybody else. And that turning point was the game changer for him. And I believe it's the game changer for you and the game changer for me. If your past only ends with you, then God can't begin to write the new story that he's dreaming about for the whole world through you. And there has to be a, a big moment where we open our hands and say, you know what? This isn't just about me. It's really about a God who wants to save the whole world, who can use me. When it becomes about something bigger than me, instead of being angry, I release my anger, my disappointment to the one who bled and died for me. You know, you should be in counseling if you need it. You should have close friends if you need them. You should confide in brothers and sisters, all of that, please do. But you can't release the anger of your past to a counselor across the room. You can only release the disappointment, the frustration, the disillusionment, the bitterness, the anger 
You can only release that to someone who looks back at you and says, see these scars? I get it. And I took these on for you. And to Jesus, then we can say, I've got so much that I've just held all about me. But, but I'm gonna release that, not just to anybody. I'm gonna release it to the one who bore wounds for me. I'm gonna believe in royal blue. I'm gonna believe that God is a great painter and who can take the pigment of a crushed past and light up a canvas in the most beautiful way. I'm gonna share my story and not hide my story. I'm gonna use my story and not waste my story. And I'm gonna walk in it, not limp through it. I'm not gonna deny it, but I'm gonna walk in this story by the power of God. You know, the end of that Romans 8, so powerful. It talks about how we are connected to the victory of Jesus, that nothing, death, nor life, things present or things to come, angels or powers or demons, nakedness or peril or sword, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's coming to that place of saying, in my past, I'm going to think about someone else. And I'm going to ask God to use me in someone else's life. I was reading a beautiful article, and the writer of it said, people can deny Christ, dispute Scripture, and ignore prophecy but they cannot deny, dispute, or ignore God's transformational power in someone's life. Our stories of pain, adversity, and overcoming in Christ are meant to serve as a testimony of God's faithfulness and power, evidence that God really can take what the devil meant for evil and use it for good. You know, last Sunday when Passion City was going off here. Shelly and I and some of our team were in New York preaching four times all day long from morning till night, thousands of people, several locations linked together, 10 or 12,000 people. And I got introduced and introductions are the scariest thing in life. This is our guest today is blah, blah, blah. And he's done blah, blah, blah. And he's been a part of this and that and X, Y, and Z and Passion this and Passion City Church that and on and on and on and on, and people are like, ah, oh, we're glad you're here today, and you know you're walking out there to say at some point in the day. So this book that we're talking about today opens with a story of a pastor, and you know that story, and your family, and I look out and see people I know in this room right now, and that's one layer of vulnerability, but all day long, from morning to night, just looking at people, yes, I'm the guy with the introduction, whatever that was worth, but let me tell you now, I'm also the pastor that story opens this book, the pastor who fell in a hole, the, passion, the pastor who fell in a pit, of depression, darkness, doom, and dread. Let me tell you that this guy on the stage today, the guest in your house today, is a person who is out of commission for months and in a broken down place in life. And I'm not telling you about comebacks. I'm telling you about my come back and I'm telling you I'm only standing here today by the grace and the power of Jesus. And it's so amazing in every it's so amazing in every one of those gatherings when I begin to share in that vein the theaters just fell silent. Nobody even breathing hardly. They were, I think in some ways, like, why are you even, do you, do you need to go to the clinic right now? Are you, are you okay? 
can you even say this in church, what you're saying? Is that even legal? But more they were saying, oh man, this guy's been down at the bottom where I am. And no, I don't like going to cities and saying all day to people I don't know that I fell in a hole of depression. But if I can say, God, that's ultramarine blue. Just put it all out there. So there you have it. That's what God made with the pulverized hope, dream, marriage, business, heart. And I'm here to tell you today that the brush is still in God's hand. And he can take whatever it is. If you will embrace him in it and open your hands to the process of his healing, he can take the divine brush and he can say, let's start with some ultramarine blue some royal blue and let's work with the colossal bust and let's paint in the most vivid hue that's the turning point it's not about me so I'm not trying to hide No, I'm saying, God, take your brush and do what only you can do. You know, we've been sharing these amazing stories. Last week, Ryan was kind enough to share about a tragic moment on a Christmas night where his wife instantly went to heaven and somehow miraculously his life was spared. And each of these stories is just someone's willingness to say, it's not about me. Therefore, I'm going to open my heart, my pain, my story to you. And everyone knows Matt Redmond's, without question, one of the greatest songwriters for the global church and our generation. But I'd love for you to listen to his story so that you won't think, wow, what a great life to just write these amazing songs, to win Grammys, to be recognized, to travel around the world and lead people. That's a great life, man. Must be nice. But I'd like you to hear how even in Matt's life, God is painted in royal blue. So take a look at this. I'll be right back. When I was seven years old, I came home from school one day and As soon as I came through that front door, I knew something different was going on. There was a different atmosphere in the house and my mum looked really distressed. And it wasn't too long before she sat me down and told me that my dad had been found dead that day. And it was a massive shock as a seven-year-old. I don't know how you process that. I just remember crying and crying and crying. And I remember going back to school and I could tell everyone was talking about me. I could sense that they felt some sympathy, but. I just felt very vulnerable in that moment. It was a little while later that I actually found out that my dad had actually committed suicide. He'd taken his own life. Um, I remember looking at his death certificate that he showed me and it it said that he'd used alcohol and barbiturates. To me that brought a whole lot of other questions. You know, why did he do that? Didn't he have enough to stay around for? Didn't he love us enough? Was it anything to do with me? You know, this young kid trying to process all this, was, was I to blame in any way? And then, interesting thing happened. A month later, this team of Americans came from California, actually, to the UK for the first time. It was a group of churches called the Vineyard. 
and they brought this amazingly fresh worship music to our shores in England. And they came to my church and my mum and her wisdom, just a month after my dad had died, my mum took me along to this weeknight meeting and I think I was one of the only kids there but I remember just looking around the room and just seeing people caught up with God in a way I'd never seen before and there was this music was just so beautiful and so soothing but I noticed people were talking to God through it in a way I hadn't really seen before and there's no way at that age I could have put my words around it but I would say what I was seeing was the people of God in the presence of God pouring out the praises of God and it made such a massive impact on my life so my childhood went on and I was learning how to cope without not having a dad around and before long my mum actually met this new guy he seemed like a great guy and, and uh, he was a school teacher and my mum married him and it felt like I had a new dad at first you know I remember some really good memories but then there was a dark day and I was in my early teenage years and this guy who I now call dad abused me this went on for about a year and a half. I didn't really know where to turn. I didn't think I could talk to anyone. I was scared of the ramifications if I did, and also uh, I didn't want the family to break up again anyway. I had so many questions. Is this anything to do with me? Do I deserve this? Have I brought this on myself? And it was a really, really troubling and turbulent time for me. But the interesting thing was that that worship music which God had planted in my life those few years before, it really came to the fore at this moment. It was the place where I found my sanity. It was the place where I found some solid ground to stand on. And You know, I, I had no clue how to play guitar, but I just started to pick it up because I wanted to play these worship songs. They were my safe place. You know, I often say that the throne room of God is a place of reverence. Yes, but it's also a place of refuge. It's that safe, solid, steadfast place when all your world's breaking and shaking apart. You can go there and everything's stable and and so that's where I would go often. I'd take my little guitar and be in my room and I'd be singing these songs and I'd even start writing songs. So here I am, you know, I'm 42 years old now and love what I do. I get to write songs and sing songs and leap worship and travel all over the world. And it's a huge privilege, but I can see the, the roots of what I do and the seeds of these songs. I can see it right, right back in my childhood. I don't understand everything, but I can see that God's brought blessing and fruitfulness and something good out of something which the enemy meant for harm. Looking back over life, I realized actually, even in those early years, I never really felt this gaping gap. I never really felt fatherless. It says in the Psalms that the Lord is a father to the fatherless. And I definitely found that to be true in my life. You know, I remember one of the first songs I wrote. It's one of the first songs that ever traveled around in the UK where I'm from. It's called, I Will Offer Up My Life. And it has this lyric in it, Lord, receive the sacrifice of a broken heart. And to some people that's just a lyric, to other people they attach their story, but I knew that what that meant for me because I wrote that lyric in the very room that I was abused in. These songs wouldn't exist uh, without the pain in my early years. I love how God's using these songs to help other people process their pain and stay close to Him in those seasons. When I think of my comeback, uh, I think I could have ended up in a whole different place. I think of a kid who could have processed his pain in a very different way. If I hadn't been connected to the church, if I hadn't had some kind of connection to the heart of God in that moment, I don't know where I would have ended up. I look back and I, I think maybe where there would have just been ashes, now there's beauty and life, and where there would have been maybe just pain, there's a lot of purpose and God's promises are very clearly seen in my life. And one thing I realized is that, you know, our scars, they're not just records of our wounds, they're also a display of our healing. When I tell my story now, when I think back through what I've been through, um, yeah, I can see the pain I went through, but I can see actually God's brought me through. And now these things tell the story of his goodness. These scars tell the story of his kindness and his mercy and his power in my life. And that's my comeback. <laughs>